There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. But I would love to send some of those economists back 20 years in a time machine, make them spend three days living in 1999 and then come back and tell me that nothing has got better since then and that the capitalist system has failed. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, editor of CapEx. For this week's episode, we're bringing you a fascinating panel discussion from the Conservative Party conference in Manchester. Among a number of packed-out fringe events, our parent organisation, the Centre for Policy Studies, brought together some of the leading lights on the right to discuss the case for conservatism, or why free markets and competition really are the only game in town. Hosting the discussion was the Centre's director, Robert Colville, who's also CapEx's editor-in-chief. Robert was joined by the Conservative MP, Neil O'Brien, former Downing Street advisor, Stephen Parkinson, Kate Andrews, Associate Director at the Institute of Economic Affairs, and last but by no means least, the leading Brexiteer and Member of the European Parliament, Daniel Hanan. The reason for this, this panel is one of the very few panels in this entire sort of agenda uh, that doesn't have a sort of sponsor attached, doesn't have a particular sort of sectoral interest, doesn't, hopefully doesn't have too many people in the audience who are going to stand up and say, I represent these people, can you give us more money, Minister? Um, what, so I've, I've written this thing that's on your, on your chairs called Popular Capitalism. It's an attempt to explain sort of to, to, to a sort of an intelligent but undecided person why being a capitalist, being a believer in the free market, and actually being a conservative doesn't necessarily make you evil. That, uh, you know, there is a reason that we like free market things, there is a reason we like competition, there is a reason we like choice, there is a reason we like, um, you know, uh, prosperity and growth, um, and it's because these things all tend to go together, and whenever anything else has been tried, it's not really been that good an idea. And... Um, one of the things I came across while I was researching this uh, this pamphlet, and I think that's this is kind of now changing because of uh, Brexit and circumstances, essentially how unmoored the Conservative Party has become, how unmoored the Conservative Party's image of itself has become from what voters actually think. So if you were to ask people in this room and in this hall, what does the Conservative Party stand for, the answers you might get would be competent stewardship of the economy, low taxes, law and order, home ownership, uh, you know, on the side of the hard-working, you know, person struggling to get on, uh, wanting to make the best of their lives. If you ask the voters whether any of those things are true, certainly uh, sort of over the last couple of years, the answers you get are no, 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 no. Uh, the, uh, the prospect did a poll uh, two years ago where the only group which the Conservatives were felt to be on the side of was international bankers and billionaires. 
Um, was that that's, I mean, and you, the, the party kind of kind of got away with it for, for a while just because it was up against, like, you know, you could say, well, Ed, do you really want Ed Miliband to become Prime Minister? Do you really want Nicola Sturgeon to be kind of running the government? Do you really want Jeremy Corbyn to become Prime Minister? I mean, those are very good arguments to make, but they don't amount to an inspiring programme that tells people how you are going to make their lives better and connects you to their values. So the sort of the essay question, I guess, for the, um, for the panellists today and uh, is, is how, do you, how do you persuade the conserv- people that the Conservative Party is, is on their side? What does a conservatism look like that, as, as Thatcher's did back, back in the day, has that, sort of, that feeling to it that it is palpably and necessarily on the side of, of everyday people? Um, and I think it's, uh, it's sort of possibly, after, after getting Brexit done, it's possibly the most important question that the Conservative Party, party has to answer. So, um, Neil, do you want to kick us off? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a huge, uh, huge pleasure to follow Robert, who has brought such a lot of energy and new life and fizz to the CPS. He's doing an absolutely fantastic uh, job. And I realised the other day, I saw, I have Robert's book, The Great Acceleration, on my, my shelf. And I realised it was wedged in between Winston Churchill's Nobel Prize-winning History of the English-Speaking People and Plato's The Republic. That is the kind of company that Robert is keeping on my bookshelf. And one of the good things about the book, which is about how everything in our society, from social media to food to financial markets, is going ever faster, is that it took Robert 10 years to write the book. It's the slowest, uh, slowest book about um, uh, fast-moving times I've ever read. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I wondered if I could talk to you above the noise of the trolleys going by uh, about what conservatism is. Robert's already talked about the free market. And the free market is a very important part of contemporary conservatism, but it's not the only part. Um, it's sometimes tempting to think that um, liberalism and socialism are ideologies, whereas conservatism is basically like a character trait. But that isn't quite right. Really, um, liberalism and socialism are ideologies that are about maximising one thing, either freedom or equality, but it's maximising one thing. And conservatives... Uh, conservatives believe in a lot of different values and sometimes those values that we hold are intention and sometimes they reinforce one another and I thought I would talk about some of those different values that we we believe in so law and order is a core conservative idea Uh, we could go all the way back to Hammurabi 3,000 years ago but really the patron saint of law and order conservatives is of course Thomas Hobbes he was horrified by what he'd seen in the civil war and he realized that uh, without a strong central authority without law and order then life is nasty brutish and short And it's a good example also of how our ideas reinforce one another because, of course, a strong policy on law and order is a strong one-nation policy because who suffers when there is disorder and crime? It's the weakest people. Uh, Crime, you are more likely, if you're in the poorest fifth of areas, you are 50% more likely to be a victim of crime. So a strong law and order policy is a strong one-nation policy. So that's one element. Another uh, element of conservatism is constitutional conservatism. On the wall of my constituency office in Market Harborough, I have a membership card from 100 years ago. Uh, and our slogan then wasn't about getting Brexit done or being strong and stable or being, uh, having a long-term economic plan. It was the throne, the altar, and the cottage, because we were all about the Constitution. And um, uh, the hero, of course, of constitutional conservatives is A.V. Dicey. And so do you believe, ladies and gentlemen, do you believe in keeping the monarchy? Do you believe in a House of Lords that is not elected? Do you believe in keeping first-past-the-post for elections? Do you believe in an unwritten constitution? If so, you might be a constitutional conservative. 
And, of course, these ideas, constitutional conservatism, are more important than ever. The idea of the rule of law is very, very relevant when you have an opposition party that wants to expropriate your shares, take away your garden, take away your pension, steal the assets of private schools. These ideas are becoming more and more relevant. Another type of um, uh, important part of constitution, or, uh, sorry, another part of uh, conservatism that's very important, is the whole idea of liberty, and our traditional liberties in particular. Habeas corpus, limits on government, and liberty is always a very controversial idea. Um, think about uh, fox hunting as a big controversial issue. And the debates about modern types of liberties are just even more controversial. So uh, you have a big question about drugs, for example. Now, I'm not a libertarian, I'm a conservative. I, um, I tend to agree with the liberal philosopher J.S. Mill, who said, ill deserves the name confinement, that which fences us in from bogs and marshes. And that's what I think about drugs policy. I think um, I, I understand why some conservatives are in favour of liberalisation. I personally think it would be a mistake. But it always raises big, complicated questions. Think about the case of the, the gay marriage cake. And I think the courts were right. They ruled that. Uh, though you cannot refuse as a shop to serve someone because they are gay, you can't make someone make a cake that has a political slogan on that they don't believe in. I thought that was the right judgment. Uh, what do we think about contemporary issues like the rollout of live facial recognition technology in public places? Currently no law on it. Should there be? Should we be in favour of that technology or should we be against it? Big question about liberty. So that's another plank of conservatism, liberty. Social conservatism is another important plank, and that's often in tension with, with liberty. Are you worried about family breakdown? What do you think about transgender issues and who can use what changing rooms? Uh, what do you think about full facial veils? In France, they've banned them. Here, we've allowed them. Liberty, uh, social uh, conservatism, intention. When you think about immigration, do you think we should just think about immigrant skills and their earning potential, or do you think about their ability to integrate into our society? All these are the elements of social conservatism. You could write a book on that uh, in, in its own right. And a big idea within social conservatism is, of course, the idea of the nation-state. It both animates Brexit, but also makes us passionate about preserving the wonderful United Kingdom, prepared to make sacrifices even to keep our wonderful family together. Civic conservatism and society is another big element of conservatism. Uh, conservatives really understand the importance of what Burke called the little platoons that make up society in a way that uh, socialists never will. Conservatives are not just the party of individualism, though we are the party of individualism. We're also the society party. We know that a lot of problems can't be solved by either the free market or the state. Think about loneliness, a bigger social issue every year with more older people. We know that loneliness, persistent loneliness is as bad for you as smoking a packet of cigarettes every day. But that problem can only be solved by civic society, and we've got to think about how we empower social societies to solve those kind of problems. Um, David Cameron was completely right when he said that there is such a thing as society, it's just not the same as the state. And his idea about the big society, though it was badly timed, is a really important one in conservatism that we should uh, return to. But I mentioned individualism. Individualism and self-reliance is another big plank of conservatism. And Mrs Thatcher, of course, captured this wonderfully well, but her full quote is better than the short quote you often hear. She said, Lots of people are casting their problems at society. And as you know, there's no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families, and no government can do anything except through people. And people must look after themselves first. It's our duty first to look after ourselves and then to look after our neighbours. So the full quote is much richer than the idea that there's no such thing as society. 
And our idea about individual self-reliance has, of course, changed over time. In the 90s, we were very in favour of the idea of people opting out of public services like schools and hospitals, self-relying on those things. Well, that, we've changed our minds. We're more in favour of things like the NHS now, but we still, through the, thing, the logic of things like uh, the doubling of the personal allowance and income tax, we still believe that you've got to earn enough to support yourself first. We believe in self-reliance. And George Osborne was really onto something when he talked about a higher wage, lower tax, lower welfare society. I think that was really important. Uh, idea. I personally believe that tax should be based on your ability to pay. So I believe in bringing back the tax allowances for children, which Labour abolished in the 1970s. I think we all still believe in individual home ownership. So we still believe in individualism. Last two elements of conservatism. So gradualism and anti-revolution, a massive part of our thinking. We've talked about Burke already. Uh, Burke, of course, originally attacked the French Revolution because he could see it was a huge, dangerous leap in the dark. Uh, and in contrast, he gave a really nice description of gradualism. He said, by a slow but well-sustained progress, the effect of each step we take is watched. The good or ill success of the first give light to us in the second, and so from light to light we are conducted with safety through the whole series. And that's his idea of gradualism. The opposite of that idea really is kind of utopianism, revolution, the Chinese cultural revolution, the great leap forward in which millions of people died. That's the opposite of what we believe in. And I suppose the last element, really, of, of, um, of conservatism is the whole idea of pluralism and decentralization, things that we believe in. Because environmentalists have shown us why it's dangerous to have a monoculture of anything. Think about the Irish potato family. You can never rely on one thing, because if it goes wrong, it goes wrong on a huge scale. And if you think about something like the way that, during the heyday of disastrous progressive teaching methods, which I suffered from at school, um, grammar schools in the independent sector were a bastion where traditional methods that actually worked were preserved. And so when progressivism failed, it could come back from somewhere. That's why we believe in pluralism. Think about the way in the US they have their states as the laboratories of democracy. Welfare reforms that were done at the national level were tested and grew up in the states first. And in the UK, we need to do more of that. We need more decentralisation, more experimentation, so we can learn what works. Sometimes those experiments will work. In this city, we have a wonderful tram network that was built when that idea was out of fashion. Uh, but in Wales, we have the abolition of school league tables, which we now have good academic evidence to show was a disaster, but we can use that to fight against Labour trying to do it at the national level. So experimentation, crucial. And there is a deeper kind of pluralism that Conservatives should believe in as well, which is um, a diversity of different ideas of the good life. Not all of us are motivated by money, right? I believe we should have an honour system because we need to recognise people who are not motivated by money. They want to serve this country, maybe it's on the battlefield, maybe it's serving the country by running a community centre in their area. But people have got different ideas of the good life. And so when we think about things like childcare, we shouldn't just be about maximising employment or improving children's education. We should give people the chance, if they want to stay at home, be stay-at-home parents, to make that choice for themselves. If that's your idea of the good life, you should be allowed to pursue it. So there's all these different ideas, ladies and gentlemen, of conservatism, law and order, the constitution, liberty, social conservatism, civic conservatism, individual self-reliance, gradualism, pluralism. It's a, lot, it's a lot to hold in your head. I think it's a much richer and deeper idea than socialism or liberalism will ever be. And I, when I think of it, the metaphor that comes to mind is actually um, uh, is the Westminster Hall in the House of Commons. And for those of you who've been there, you'll know it's this wonderful old structure with these huge ancient beams, hammer beams, and they're all resting on one another. And there's a wonderful kind of evocative smell of these ancient timbers. And together, they're all holding up the roof, all these big, ancient, strong ideas. And together, they make something that's really strong and really enduring. And that's what I think of when I think of conservatism. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Thank you, Neil. That was, that was, that was amazing. Um, uh, and now a man who obviously does believe in the honour system as well. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Thank you very much, Robert, and thank you, Neil. It is very good to be back at the Centre for Policy Studies, as uh, Rob says. This is my uh, first gig uh, since, uh, since leaving government, indeed, probably uh, my first sort of gig on the Conservative fringe uh, since I was last at the Centre for Poli Policy Studies in 2006-07, when we had far fewer uh, events uh, and uh, far less high-tech and far less well-attended. So it's, it's great to see the CPS flourishing uh, under Robert's uh, directorship. Um, you should definitely take a copy with you and read uh, Robert's uh, um, pamphlet on popular capitalism, uh, at the centre of which lies a key question, um, you know, where should power lie? That was a central question during the EU referendum in 2016, but it's a, it's a central question for politics in any age. And the Conservative answer to it is the most complex. Uh, as a movement, as a party, um, we don't believe in uh, you know, ab uh, ideological absolutes. Uh, we give the most nuanced uh, and sometimes contradictory answers, uh, so mine will follow uh, in that, uh, that, uh, that proud tradition. Um, but the conservative answer on where power should lie is manifold. We believe that power should lie with strong individuals. People should be able to take as many decisions over their lives and power should uh, lie as closely to the people as possible. But we believe too in strong institutions. We believe in those small platoons that make up civ civic society, as Neil spoke about, family, community, small uh, civic institutions. And we believe in the great national ones as well, parliament and an independent judiciary. Uh, we are respectful of those that have endured down the centuries, but as conservatives, we have a strong vein of scepticism and it is right to challenge ourselves and our institutions uh, to make them stronger. And we believe in the nation-state. Uh, that's an idea that at one time was thought to be outdated, uh, but w which we keep coming back to. It's, it, you know, the nation-state, an evolving concept, is still the thing that gives us a sense of identity and pride in a changing world. Um, uh, and you know, that can be a, a, you know, there's a, a great book on uh, Thatcherism by Andrew Gamble, which talks of the strong society and the free economy. It wasn't a contradiction in terms to Mrs. Thatcher uh, to roll back the frontiers of the state, but to maintain a strong and proud nation state too. So since um, people answered, where should power lie, not with you, uh, to the Theresa May administration uh, earlier this year, I've had the chance to, to step back uh, a little bit and, and reflect over the summer. Um, and as an optimist, um, some thoughts strike me. Um, the, the turbulence that we see in our politics are not just particular to the UK. If you look at the Gilets Jaunes in France, if you look at the division and rancor that we see in the United States, if you look at the results in the other member states in the European elections, understandably overshadowed by uh, the results here in the UK from our perspective, but if you look, the, the two main and established party blocks went down while smaller new populist parties of left and right uh, grew. Uh, there is turbulence around the world in other polities. And it's not just because of Brexit. There's the continued fallout of the economic crash and the, the sort of lingering uh, concerns that people have about the way that the global economy is structured. Um, 
They, we have also a, an expanded and a more engaged um, polity, a, a greater demos. That's you know, definitely been changed by social media, which has changed the way that we consume but also exchange our views with others. Uh, there are more people in the political conversation, which is undeniably a good thing, but it means that we have to adapt and change the way that we have that conversation ourselves. And we haven't kept up, as uh, Robert's book on the Great Acceleration uh, will tell us. Sometimes these changes happen more quickly than we, we evolve to. Um, the echo chambers and algorithms of social media have certainly challenged the way that we engage with one another. Uh, there's a challenge to the pluralism of thought as um, people try and drown out arguments that they disagree with. It's okay to disagree. In fact, that's how um, sort of great ideas are, um, are, are formed from the, cl from the clash and debate. Um, and it's very easy to take offence. Uh, we saw it in, in Parliament uh, last week as people take offence at the words that are used in debate but forget um, things, even in our recent past, that 35 years ago, almost to the week, Republican terrorists planted a bomb at our party conference that killed five people, including a member of Parliament, and that two weeks later a Labour backbencher by the name of Jeremy Corbyn invited two convicted members of the IRA to the House of Commons uh, and welcomed them. Um, so we need to have a sense of history and a sense of perspective uh, and remember these things. There are so, some specific factors in the UK, though, that I think have contributed to the turbulence that we've seen here and the challenges to conservatism. Uh, I think we are living out the consequences of the changes that the Tony Blair gov governments uh, brought about to our country. It's 20 years since, since devolution, uh, but devolution was done in, in a way that didn't, wasn't as quick to give responsibility and accountability to some of the institutions as it was a new voice. It didn't answer and still hasn't answered questions like the West Lothian question and how to give voice uh, to communities in other parts of the UK in the most populous uh, country that have felt underrepresented for a long time. The 2005 reforms that set up the Supreme Court created a, a tension between the different branches of government that have been playing out, played out over recent weeks. We've sort of walked into more of a, a US-style system of a separation of powers when that's not been our tradition. We took the judiciary out of Parliament, and of course there's now a, a clash between a Supreme Court that sits on one side of, of, of Parliament Square to the Parliament that the law lords left. Uh, and the Blair government set up the Human Rights Act, which started to look to an international treaty and a foreign court to answer some of the questions about where liberty uh, should lie. So as we take back control from Brussels and we, we've got to confront what sort of nation we want to build uh, uh, you know, as, 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 a, as a free and sovereign state once again. And that answer to me has to be a complex conservative one. We want to have strong individuals who keep more of their money, not just from the state uh, so that there's uh, lower taxes and uh, people can, can keep more, but also keep more of their money from the corporations uh, that are privately run. We want to make sure that uh, we challenge monopolies, we challenge uh, companies that are, that are, that, that, that are um, broken markets. We want to be an independent and outward-looking state, free, sovereign, but also playing our full part on the international stage, signing trade deals with old allies and new partners. Uh, being control of our borders, but also attractive to the brightest and best from around the world. And we need to have genuinely respected institutions, and I think that's the hardest one and the area which we need to give the greatest thought to over the coming years. Um, 
we need to contain uh, to, 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 to maintain our tradition of a, uh, an independent judiciary. Uh, we need a sovereign but also a responsible parliament. We need to answer questions if there are to be further referendums. What are the rules that uh, should govern how the, the answers that are given are played out? If, if Parliament gives the, a choice to people, what are the duties of Parliament uh, to, to enact it? Um, and whilst as an instinctive Tory I am very worried about the, the, the notion of a written constitution, I think we do need to think about how we sort of agree and write down those rules so that things which have in previous parliaments and in previous generations uh, been uh, preceded on the basis of convention and decency uh, can be codified and written down so that we all know uh, where things stand. Thank you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, a huge thank you to the CPS for asking me to join the panel. Uh, Neil's quote about J.S. Mill reminded me of one of my own favorites, if I may. Uh, the only freedom which deserves the name is that of pursuing our own good in our own way, so long as we do not attempt to deprive others of theirs or impede their efforts to obtain it. Each is the proper guardian of his own health, whether bodily or mental, or spiritual. And it is that J.S. Mill quote that makes me think that we should take a more liberalized stance on cannabis and potentially other forms of drugs. And I, I don't say that to get into a quote war with Neil or to throw down the gauntlet. I actually say that because it perfectly summarizes what I want to briefly talk to you about today, which are the tensions within the Conservative Party, within those who call themselves conservatives, and how I think after Brexit they really are going to come to the forefront. And I think in the age of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party um, and in the age of socialism, you know, coming to the forefront and being on the rise, it's 
the, it's very easy to make the conservative party and conservatism a big tent, a part, of, a, an aspect of society, a philosophical and political ideology that people from very different areas of life can come under because they feel that they want to push back on socialism. But actually, that, that, that tent is very big, and it has conservatives, it has classical liberals, it has small-l liberals in their own right. And, and I think many people are starting to blur the lines as to how they actually identify. I mean, I know I am, politically speaking anyway. Um, I'm a Republican voter who was a never-Trumper. Uh, to be honest, up until a few years ago, I probably personally closer aligned to many liberal Democrat policies than I did other parties until they decided that centrism was actually big statism uh, and that it was okay not to respect Democratic mandates. Uh, but philosophically, I, I feel very very grounded in where I am and convinced every day as we see uh, the miracle that our free markets and free enterprise improve people's lives, that that is the direction we want to head in. But instinctively, I, I also feel like a, a classical liberal, and oftentimes that comes into conflict with conservatism more than we might want to admit. Thankfully, not really in terms of the social issues anymore, and I think that David Cameron gets a lot of credit for that. Um, bringing in gay marriage and taking that out of the debate. So it's not really a question about who you can love anymore or what's appropriate in terms of that kind of lifestyle. But many of the other kinds of lifestyles that people want to live and the intergenerational issues with that. Um, the planning system um, is something that conservatives tend to take a very protectionist attitude towards, which is something that people aged 25 to 40, I think we're really starting to stretch the term young people, struggle with because they can't get on the housing ladder. They can't even Imagine a time in their life where they could buy a house. You know, I take the argument that a 25-year-old shouldn't necessarily be entitled to buy a home, but they should believe in a decade's time they can, and at the moment, many can't. Uh, the conservatives take a very protectionist attitude towards the nanny state. Uh, they have for years now, and even Boris Johnson, who I believe to be much more liberal than your average conservative, who's pushing back on a milkshake tax, doesn't seem particularly keen to actually go after things like the sugar tax, which aren't working, and are simply there for the government to remind us all that it can intervene in our lives and in terms of what we eat and consume and drink on any given day. Um, and, you know, the NHS has been brought up. I mean, the protectionist attitude that conservatives have towards the healthcare system is really baffling when you look at the rest of the developed world apart from the U.S. and the idea that we can't even talk about the benefits and the systems there that might be providing um, better care for their patients. And I think that these tensions are going to come to the forefront after Brexit because the party has become such a big tent, the ideology has become such a big tent, but there are different ideas in it, and those debates have to happen. But I'm going to end on a slightly more positive note because um, the, the title of the panel is The Case for uh, conservatism, and I think that there are two areas I want to highlight where it's very easy to make the case, and I think everybody in the tent can get on board. And the first is private property rights, and I highlight that specific value because what's happening across the aisle and what's happening with the, so so uh, um, the socialist ideology that's rising up is that they're targeting private property specifically and in a very extreme way, um, actually talking about the expropriation of business and of houses and taking people's private property from them. Um, I think you have to be very, very far left on the spectrum to get on board with that kind of policy and idea. And it's an area where 
conservatism can absolutely hone in on what it's good at and say we need to stop. And the other one I would highlight um, is that in the age of Brexit and everybody blaming Brexit for different kinds of uncertainty, different kinds of problems, particularly business saying that Brexit is causing ultimate uncertainty, I think there's actually um, something else doing it as well, and that is uh, the growing instability of our institutions, uh, not simply political institutions, but the courts and the rule of law and things that conservatism have always um, uplifted and, and, and seen as values. And it is those, th that strength of those particular institutions that keep a country strong, even in the age of Brexit, even in the age of a recession, even in the age of any kind of uncertainty. Um, and I think that looking to the past, holding on to those values to keep those institutions strong, institutions that are respected and have been replicated in all different parts of the world that are envied deeply by countries that don't stand up for the rule of law and individual freedoms have to be upheld. So in those two areas, the ideology can certainly continue to make its case, and I think it can bring everybody from classical liberals like me to people who are very deeply entrenched in conservative values on board. Thanks for listening. My wife is a much better conservative than I am. Because fundamentally, she is unideological. Burke, who Neil quoted a moment ago, said it was a, a symptom of a disordered polity to take refuge in theories. And for her, conservatism is very much an attitude rather than a, a set of precepts. She teaches Sunday school. She's engaged with all the village clubs and activities. She's a stay-at-home mum of our three-year-old child. I say our three-year-old child. He's blonde and very chubby and giggles all the time and likes girls. So in the current climate, I have to wonder whether he's really uh, our child. But the point is she... The point is she is the best kind of conservatives because she's She's fundamentally unpolitical. A lot of you will have heard this before. It's the best definition of conservatism out there. But it, I, 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 I think it bears repetition. It's Michael Oakeshott's famous passage where he says, to be a conservative is to prefer the familiar to the unknown, to prefer the tried to the untried, the actual to the possible, the limited to the unbounded, the near to the distant, the sufficient to the superabundant, the convenient to the perfect, present laughter to utopian bliss. And fundamentally, what makes us conservatives is our readiness to go with human nature. Every alternative ideology, theocracy or socialism or revolutionary communism has an idea of what people should be like and tries to mold them into that shape. At best, that ends with coercion and expropriation. At worst, it ends with gulags and firing squads. Because in the end, if you are trying to force people to behave in a way that runs up against what makes them human beings, you can only do it by the use of state force. So how's this for a definition of conservatism? 
adapted from Oakeshott, and like everything adapted from Burke, who was, of course, the grandfather ideologically of all of us. If the ethic of liberalism is freedom, and if it says, I may, if the ethic of socialism is coercion, and it says, you must, then the ethic of conservatism is community, and it says, we ought. Deeply embedded in the conservative vision are those Burkean little platoons, which is why the other side, when they get into power, always set out to destroy them. When the communists took power in Hungary, Janos Kadar was given the task of destroying every institution, every private club and organization that was outside the control of the state. And he went through methodically and destroyed more than a thousand women's institutes, tennis clubs, Boy Scout troops, until there was nothing left between individual and state. The whole space of civic society had been left hollowed out, desolate and sterile. That's the true wickedness of socialism. It atomizes us. It separates us one from another. It turns the interrogator's spotlight on us and leaves us there squirming. That's the real evil. So how extraordinary that we're even having to talk about this. When we've seen other systems tried and tested, when we've seen the empirical superiority of our own, why are we having to go back to first principles and explain to people why conservatism is superior to the current rival of socialism? Extraordinary that at the last election here, two in five of our fellow countrymen voted for a party led by somebody who regretted the outcome of the Cold War, who was fundamentally on the other side when it mattered. How are we to explain this extraordinary paradox? I mean, we should have won this argument. Indeed, I thought we had won this argument in 1989. And it turned out that I, and perhaps some of you, were completely wrong. Well, part of our challenge is this. People have bad memories. People have bad memories and a false sense of nostalgia based on an absence of perspective. How many times do you hear it asserted that living standards for ordinary people in the West are no better than they were 20 years ago or are, are even in, in some of these uh, studies said to be worse than they were, right? Really? Worse than they were to... I mean, I, I, all the panellists are too young to remember. I can remember how we lived 20 years ago. I, I suspect one or two of you in the audience can remember what life was like in 1999. There were four channels on TV, occasionally supplemented by the odd blockbuster video. There was obviously no wiki, there was no Wi-Fi, there were no cheap flights, or rather EasyJet was operating at that stage one, one cheap flight from Luton to Amsterdam. There was no, none of the diversity of food on supermarket shelves and in restaurants. Incredible though this sounds, there was no Starbucks. There was a, a predecessor called Seattle Coffee that was just beginning to introduce people to the idea that coffee didn't need to taste like ditch water. Uh, now, now how, do we, how do we measure the utility of those things? So when, when we're told life has got no better and capitalism has failed, Economists are focusing only on the one thing that they can measure, which is the value of wages. And of course it is true that the liberation of hundreds of millions of people from communist or closed or autarkic societies throughout Africa and Asia has lowered the value of wages relative to capital. 
But that's only looking at one bit of the equation. It's not looking at the myriad of ways in which life has become more diverse and richer. The fact that we're now able to carry in the palm of our hands information which 20 years ago an entire government wouldn't have had at its fingertips. How do you measure that? Well, you can't. So they don't. But I would love to send some of those economists back 20 years in a time machine, make them spend three days living in 1999 and then come back and tell me that nothing has got better since then and that the capitalist system has failed. Other people say, well, all right, maybe let's concede that capitalism delivers material growth. But don't we pay a cost, they say. Isn't there something soulless and materialistic about it? Aren't we all worse off because, although we may be physically richer and better off, we're missing out on friends and family and the important things in life? After all, how um, empty and soulless would you have to be to be more interested in a comfortable bank balance than in listening to Beethoven or going for a nice walk in the country or spending more time with your children? Well, I'm going to let you into a secret here, guys. I've been an elected conservative politician for more than 20 years, and I was uh, involved in the conservative movement for a long time before that. I spend all my political uh, life in largely right-of-centre circles. I have not yet met a single person who thinks that you derive more pleasure from a big bank balance than from listening to Beethoven or going for a walk or playing with your kids. But before you mock the importance of GDP. Consider the impact that wealth has on freeing up our time and allowing us to make different choices. Consider the extraordinary advances in material prosperity over the last generation that enable us to do things that our grandparents regarded as the rarest luxuries. It's because you can afford a dishwasher and don't have to wash all the dishes by hand that you now have the time to go and have that nice walk in the country. It's because you have a car and you don't have to take several buses and trams to get to work that you're able to go and listen to the Beethoven. It's because you don't have to spend six days a week just keeping a roof over your head and feeding your kids that you have the weekend to play with them. When people say people before profit, as we kept hearing from the Labour conference last week, I have to ask, how do you imagine that profit can exist other than for and through people. Prophets are not some kind of numinous entity that hang there disembodied next to human beings. When prophets are exercised through people, especially the poorest people on the planet, it means that they have bicycles and vaccines and access to clean water. It's the ultimate first world privilege to sneer at prophets and to claim that somehow they are in opposition to our humanity. So, what is conservatism? Conservatism is human nature. Conservatism is the realisation that government has to recognise the materials with which it's working, rather than trying to squeeze us into an imagined perfect vision. As T.S. Eliot put it, dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. And that's ultimately why I am very hopeful. I have great confidence in the good sense of our fellow countrymen, in what is really called the sublime instincts of an ancient people. And when that ancient people listens to what's on offer, that from one party they're offered expropriation, closure of private schools, seizure of private houses, 
enfranchising foreigners here while leaving disenfranchised Britons who have gone abroad, spending money that we don't have, disregarding the way people voted in a national referendum. When they hear those things, they find that they don't gel with human nature. They run up against the common sense prejudices that make our country. And so let me close as I opened with that godfather of conservatism, Edmund Burke, who explained in 1798 why we are going to win the election when it comes. Because half a dozen grasshoppers concealed beneath the fern make the field ring with their importunate chink, while thousands of great cattle chew the cud beneath the shade of the great British oak in silence. Pray do not imagine that those who make all the noise are the only inhabitants of the field. That was absolutely majestic. I, I feel guilty that because he arrived late, we didn't tell Dan that there was a camera on him. But um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, among his many other qualities, our Prime Minister is a very forgiving man. He's a man. very forgiving man. Um, uh, I, 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 frankly, um, the main thing I've learned from this is that all of the other panellists have a much better memory for quotes than I do. Um, uh, I, there's so much to get into here, and it's been, I mean, genuinely inspiring, refreshing to hear people talk actual sort of first principles stuff. Um, but there's so many of you, and I'm sure so many of you would like to ask questions. So, um, guys, if we can um, get the mics going and... Um, yeah, um, well, yeah, the, the two gentlemen at the front there. Hello. So, um, I'm Comrade, so I'm... Yeah, I've just graduated. And I think one thing that cons- Conservatives sort of need to stand up for more against all the Liberals is preserving the family, and uh, Neil did mention sort of family breakdown and that. Um, how do you think that Conservatives can make the case for family more strongly? Okay, and uh, next question. Oh, well, so let's, let's do three at once. I suppose it's a bit contrary to that. Um, I will bring in Conservative um, liberalism, um, and one of the things I appreciate is, um, is hearing about the vast range um, of Conservative ideas and Conservative principles. Um, during these difficult times, <laughs> uh, which is often said, but particularly during a time of minority government and Brexit, um, how ought we resolve um, the wrestles, we, the internal struggles that we have in a, as a party um, with maintaining the broad church principle and uh, needing everyone to pull in one direction? Um, I give an example of the talk that's happening up there um, immediately after this one, which is um, ex-Conservative MPs, lots of them discussing how to stop Brexit. Hello, yes, uh, Oliver Jakes, a district councillor at Warwick and Leamington. Um, my question is uh, really aimed at what, what should Conservatism be going forward? Um, we, we, we've heard a lot over recent days on Beyond Brexit, uh, surely, I, mean, I, I hope there's a deal, but come 1st of November, we are not beyond Brexit. Uh, surely conservatism necessarily needs to be, going forward, at least for the next decade, helping the country at all levels of society, business, um, 
civil society adjust to the challenges of Brexit uh, and conservatism's um, uh, success or otherwise over the next decade could well be judged on our ability to handle that adjustment well. So I'd like to know what the panel think. Um, well, um, I'll start just on, on, on the family point because it's something I talk about in the, in the pamphlet. I think one of the mistakes, sort of maybe rhetorically rather than um, in actual fact, that the Conservative Party, the, the sort of Thatcher, Thatcherites made, was talking so much about the individual. Uh, talking about the you know your, your individual enterprise, individual freedom. I mean, the fact is, to all of us, the interests of our family are essentially co-identical to our own. Um, you know, we don't. This is why the two, the like the most unpopular taxes in this country by absolute mile are um, are things like inher- our inheritance tax and the idea of selling your home to pay for social care, which is a kind of d- d- disguise tax. You know, because the idea is that. You know, we don't uh, kind of to sort of echo what Dan said. We don't earn money for the sheer giddy thrill of piling it up in our bank account. We earn money because you know it helps us, you know, live a decent life. But it also provides us with something to, to pass on to our children. And I think, yeah, absolutely. I think there is a the, the importance of the family is sort of profoundly central to conservatives. And I think it has been allowed to drift uh, drift from the agenda. Um, and I'll let, I could talk about the other ones, but I'll let the other guys. Can I have a go on the on the on the Brexit points? Um, it is widely remarked that we are suffering from an erosion of civility in our public discourse, that there is a violence of language. And I think there's some truth in that. I'm not sure that this is caused or even particularly influenced by the Brexit debate. I think it's happening in a number of Western countries, uh, and it's a, a function of tribal and polarised politics. I can remember, in fact, I remember being out with, with Parkey during the, the campaign manning street stalls. We would quite often run in to stronger in campaigners in their blue T-shirts, and we'd pose for selfies together, and we'd wish each other luck. It was then still a fairly civil disagreement about trade and sovereignty and money and so on. The, the nasty culture war has begun since, and I think is part of a bigger polarisation based around defining whom you don't like. And we've seen some horribly violent language. And I'm not talking here about uh, the, what's happened in Parliament, which I think is remarkably mild, actually. I'm talking about the kind of stuff that goes unremarked and unreported, but that we put up with every time we come to conference. People, uh, you know, literally threatening murder, celebrating Margaret Thatcher's death and so on, which no one ever talks about, but which is a, a, as much a part of the traditional Tory conference as trying to catch an invitation to the Spectator Party, right? So there's, a, there's a nastiness in public discourse. Now, how do we heal those divisions? What is the best way? And I, I just, in this room, there will be people who voted leave and people who voted remain. There'll be people who were uh, on the line up until the line. Indeed, on the, the panel, we're fairly evenly divided, Right. But wherever you stand, just ask this question. Is the best way of putting behind us this acrimony and this division to cancel the biggest vote for anything in our history? How would that work? Imagine Britain as a continuing member state, snarling and subordinate with an alienated and angry electorate in perpetuity. Do you think that's going to restore the legitimacy and authority of our political institutions? Or... Is it to string everything out through another referendum, prolonging and deepening all of the disagreements that we've had for the last three years? Or is it to deliver Brexit in an internationalist and liberal spirit that reassures the bulk of the 48% and that shows that the worst fears they had about an introverted 
or isolationist Britain are unfounded. It seems to me whichever side you're on, whichever party you support, to put that question is to answer it. Just to, to come back around again on this point about um, the family, I think there's maybe four things we should do. So the first is to try and explain the scale of the problem, which is easy to miss. If you're in a, a higher income household, family life looks much as it ever did. Um, but if you're in a lower income household, it's really different. Kids now are more likely to have a smartphone in the house than both parents by the time they get to 16. In some ethnic groups, it's um, you know, the minority of children grow up with their father. So it's a huge problem that a lot of people who are older or better off don't, don't see the full scale of. I think the things we've got to do to try and um, persuade people are partly to get the turn right, and I think in the 1990s we got the turn wrong quite a few times. We've got to understand that, you know... Uh, you know, people often in difficult situations. I know, if, I know and work with a lot of people who are lone parents. They didn't want to be in that position, and um, often it's for the best because you know, getting away from a husband who is bad news. So we've got to understand and have a, the right tone. And then I think in terms of the policy things, well, part of it is about money. I'd love to see us build on universal credit. I'd love to see us having higher work allowances so there's people who are struggling in... Uh, families on low incomes, you know, it, everything is a bit easier if you've got a bit of money. I'd love us to have tax allowances for children. A bit of money does oil the wheels. And I'd love us to really get behind, I talked about experiments, some really good experiments in relationship education. The key to everything is just knowing how to manage a good relationship, which if, if your home life has been pretty chaotic, you don't grow up with that knowledge. And I'm not sure we know what programme works, but let's do some experiments and find out. So, Pocky, that leaves you with... Um uh, the broad church question. The broad, the broad church. Good, good. Well, just quickly to echo what, what Neil says as well about on the on the family point. I think I think he's absolutely right. You know, in the, at, at points in the nineties, we we got, we, we, we got and were seen to be a bit censorious on the issue of the family, forgetting that families come in all shapes and sizes, seen to be judgmental about single parent families and about same sex couples and and so on. And that meant that we weren't able to make uh, conservative cases uh, for the family. And I think you know one of the great things about uh, the record of the Conservative Party government since 2010 and delivering gay marriages that we're able to talk about the family in, it, in, in all its modern shapes and sizes and to talk about things like shared parental leave and to talk about things like you know, transferring tax burdens between uh, you know, couples um, uh, and, and, and inheritance tax because it is a good and noble thing to want to make money and to pass it on to, uh, to future generations. Um, and on the broad church, yeah, we, 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 just, we, we, we need to get Brexit done so that we can actually get back into the satisfying part of the debate. Dan's absolutely right. During the referendum, there was a polite, civilised uh, and detailed um, debate as people were talking about whether we should do this or not, and they were engaging with the idea and the concept. The last three years has still been a debate on whether we should leave, not really how uh, and the country that we build afterwards and what's been so frustrating I think in you know the, the recent months as we're sort of seeming to go back to those old arguments but with sort of greater anger and passion and frustration is that we're missing it and you know the, the, the councillor who asked the question uh, about the 1st of November is absolutely right we want to get into the interesting questions about right great so what sort of trading nation do we want to be what are the you know the countries that we want to be uh, trading with first what are the industries that we want to be investing in here the sort of old strengths but also the new ones that we can be world leading on uh, and those are the sorts of things that people are sort of you know desperate to, to, to talk about and you know our party in all its breadth should be taking part in that um, so the best way to get onto it is to get on with it. Um, can we uh, have another, one more round of questions? May, I mean maybe two more but depending on how many uh, how much time we, how, how long winded the panel are um, <laughs> the, the two gentlemen at the back Hello um, Neil pulled out very uh, uh, very well, the 
various different um, types of conservatism and often um, having that sort of uh, uh, broad church and tensions uh, makes one think about why one is a conservative. But what would the panel say to this proposition, which is that we are no longer the mass movement we were. And one aspect of, our, of conservatism is the very strong idea of individual personal choice, which can lead to a sort of pick-and-choose mentality to politics as well as many other things. And, how, and the, the, the little platoons of our party seem to have got littler and littler, and there seems to be less of that idea of taking up the responsibility uh, as, as, as well as the inconvenience of, of that bottom-up civic society, which apply, should apply to politics as well as to other forms of volunteering. We, um, the, sorry, the point being that um, we don't just want people to vote for us. We want people to come back to us as a mass movement and an idea which, which people will, will, will actually work with. Sorry, my name is Willie Sterling. I'm the deputy chairman of the Sterling and Clap Manager uh, Conservative and Unionists. Association. Great. Alistair Campbell, Scotland. Contrary to what the fish that have recently jumped out of the North Sea and taken up um, squatting near the palace in Holyrood would have you believe, I believe that Scotland would prefer to be in the United Kingdom and would like very much to come out of the European disunion. I'd like to see in your case for conservatism, including unionism. Um, so, um, yes, so Mayor Culper on that. Um, uh, I mean, the, 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 the leaflet is about cap capitalism as opposed to conservatism, but uh, given it's a Conservative Party conference, we thought. Um, I, I just want to very quickly um, put on the, the, the point about the party being sort of being destroyed by the individualist force that it created is a good one. But I think there's also a point to make, which I, I wrote about in Conservative Home a few years ago, which the, the Troy Party... For a, for a, like in an age of consumerism, the Tory party has traditionally been spectacularly bad uh, at, 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 con, at sort of consumerism. I mean, I, I was at a sort of uh, uh, you know, the, kind of, the kind of dinner party you go to when you have this job with people like this around the table. Um, and there were sort of about ten of us in the room, and not one of us, including uh, someone who'd actually been in the cabinet, could ever remember being asked to be a member of the Conservative Party. I had... Uh, I, someone came around and buzzed on my, on my door a few years ago and said, um, you know, I just want to know how you'll be voting. And I said, well, let me put it like this. I'm the chief leader writer at the Daily Telegraph. And they said, oh, OK, I'll put you down as a Tory then. At no point did someone go, oh, hang on a second. Maybe we should ask him whether he might want to join this members association. Maybe we should have some sort of, like, marketing campaign or data on who our members are or, like, like loyalty cards or rewards or, you know, like... Any, like you know, any of the vast panoply of ways in which private sector organisations, which we apparently venerate, have discovered for generating and retaining customer loyalty. And I, I, I think and hope that's now, that's now changing. There's been some very good work recently. Um, but, you know, for many years, this was yeah. extraordinary. Well, just to, to reassure Robert and the rest of you, I mean, the, we, yeah, great, great strides have been made over recent years. I mean, it's actually when <laughs> Theresa was very proud as leader of the party to finish uh, a project that she <laughs> first discussed when she was chairman back in 2002 about actually having a centralised administration of database uh, so that we actually knew who our members were and could communicate with them uh, and, you know, and find out all the great and you know, diverse people that are in, are in the party. Um, uh, and as a result, you know, party membership is going up and has continued to grow, not least because of the, uh, the ballot... Uh, over, over, over the summer. Um, but actually, I think I was heartened by the, the example of Scotland is that, you know, their 
a whole generation of people who suddenly were engaged with, with the debate through the referendum in 2014 uh, were you know, unionists and therefore realised that the way to advance their, that idea uh, and that principle was to join and be part of the Conservative Party. And as a result of it, we have a large and thriving membership in Scotland and we have 13 members uh, of Parliament north of the border. Um, so, you know, the, actually, the sort of, it used to be said quite commonly that the age of mass uh, uh, membership uh, political parties was over. The Labour Party have proved that wrong and we are proving that wrong too. Can I come back to Alistair's question about Scotland in the Union and then the UK in the European Union? It's often put to me in Brussels that there is a contradiction here. In fact, part of the experience of being a Eurosceptic in Brussels is being repeatedly patronised by halfwits. So uh, a a very frequent occurrence there is is you will make an argument against this or that aspect of European integration. And someone will say, ah, so you want an independent Scotland? And then go away laughing to themselves as though they've scored a brilliant, devastating and original point. Here's the fundamental distinction, which, if you think about it, is a fairly obvious one. There is an organic and ancient relationship between the countries that make up our United Kingdom, resting on a series of commonalities and shared affinities which could not have been created by bureaucratic fiat in the way that the European Union is. The first case for the Union was made by that aboriginal Unionist, James VI and I, when he said, "'Hath not God first united these two kingdoms in language and religion?' And similitude of manners, hath he not made us all in one island, compassed by one sea? The idea that you can replicate that among countries which are sundered by language, by culture, by history, and by civilizational norms could only have occurred to a full-time civil servant. Although England and Scotland, of course, have separate and complementary histories, they are nonetheless intermarried and intermingled and alike. We watch the same TV, we sing the same songs, we abuse alcohol in the same ways, we dress similarly, we shop at the same chains. Those things are not true of the UK and Bulgaria or Finland, say. Not that they're not wonderful countries, but there there is a degree of foreignness that there is not uh, within this island. And the essence of nationhood is that it's organic. In, in that sense, it is the pure Burkean example of why it's a functioning polity. It's come about because of genuine affinities and allegiances and shared loyalties that could not be replicated by governmental decree. And that's why, fundamentally, our union will last, because it is not just an amplified alliance between England and Scotland. It rests also on a shared outlook that created the greatest country in the world, the country that ended slavery and liberated Europe, defeated Nazism and communism, invented virtually everything worth inventing, from parliamentary democracy to golf, uh, from the Boy Scouts to chocolate bars. You know, we are an extraordinary people, stronger together, but because we are a single people. Uh, Although a a massive act of financial speculation on behalf of the Scottish aristocracy (laughs) rather hastened the the process. Um, um, Neil, I'm sorry, we're we're, we're really out of time. So, um, any any, any final thoughts or remarks? Uh, Just just on that, I think that um, unionism, I mentioned in my remarks, unionism and the nation are a really important part of of conservatism. I would think of myself as a British person rather than English or Scottish person. My mum, my dad, my brother, my sister, my family, Scottish, I grew up in Huddersfield. And 
you know, I think it would be a very depressing example, really, for the world if this country were to break up. I mean, if we, who have so much in common, can't get along and, you know... The pettiness of the SNP is also the thing that always gets me. You know, we're only here on this earth once, not for very long. What a way to spend your life, trying to take a country where everyone gets on with each other and just constantly bloody so a division. I mean, what a miserable way to spend your life. Unionism is just better than that. It's, it's, it's part of what we are. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.